if a tree in a forest gets attacked, it will intelligently try to identify and experiment with the source of attack and create balance, maintain health, maintain a homeostasis. So a tree will alter its pH, it will alter its biochemistry, it can change the taste of its leaves, for instance, if the leaves are getting attacked. Listening to the Feel Good Community Podcast. My name is Storm. And I'm Will. A few years ago, we began our journey towards learning more about sustainability, health, and wellness. The more we learned, the more we couldn't believe that this vital information wasn't mainstream knowledge. These simple yet effective ways to heal our bodies and save our planet are being drowned out by the latest pop culture noise. Together, we began to change our lifestyle to help heal our bodies, our brains, and our planet. We have become deeply passionate about sharing this knowledge, whether it's a book we're reading, interviews from leading experts, or even just personal anecdotes. We want you to know about it. And most importantly, we want you to take this knowledge and apply it to your own family and community. All that being said, welcome to the Feel Good Community Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Feel Good Community Podcast. We are joined by Ian True from the Permaculture Noosa Forest Retreat in Queensland, Australia. Ian is a world-renowned permaculture instructor and spends his days teaching permaculture methods to students from all over the world, including myself. I signed up for his free permaculture design course online, and it made me want to start a conversation with him. Um, So... Yeah, here is the man behind it all. Ian, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Can you give a kind of like a brief bio insight for those who don't know you into who you are and what you do at the Noosa Noosa Forest Retreat? Yeah, sure, Storm. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Noosa Forest Retreat Mm -hmm. and now one of a number of owners. where we've basically found a piece of land that it was as close to nature as we could find. That was something we were really looking for. Um, We wanted land that was away from the major infrastructure of society, and I guess that's power lines, train lines, road lines, plane paths. Um, And that, when we started looking, that was really, really hard to find you know, you'd find a nice piece of land, but it'd be by a highway. So the, you know, the morning psychology would be trucks with air brakes screeching down the road. <laughs> yeah. Or you'd, or you'd drive an hour and a half out and there'd be a beautiful block of land, but there'd be high density power lines traveling across the top of it. And, you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you hold a fluoro light up at night and it sort of lights up and it's, so there was a bit of soul searching there going, oh my God, this is the reality of, you know, really getting how much we are an industrial society and how much our landscape is is designed and built around that high-tech infrastructure like roads, power lines, yeah, trains, you know, airports, and how 
how hard it is to separate yourself from that. So anyway, we found we found a piece of land that was pretty close to our goals. Um, it was at the head of the Noosa hinterland. It's surrounded by national park. Um, it was a it's been a big financial stretch for us. Um, the land we found meant paying more than what we had budgeted for. Yeah. And I think a key a key thing again there is um, we were operating as a group and I think there's, you know, Will, that's one lesson I got from the military, like what a group can do. It's incredible. So obviously the more land you buy in the Western world with, where there's a dollar value on it, the more, which is a whole discussion in itself, but obviously the more, obviously the more land you buy, the more you pay for it. But generally, the price per acre plummets. So if you can get twice as much land, the price per acre goes down to a lot less than half. If you can get four times as much land, the price per acre generally plummets to a lot less than a quarter. So what that means is if you get four times as much land and you're prepared to go into it with four parties, you all get more land for less dollars with one set of rates, with um, you know no need to have – there's a lot of money in – creating a small block of land and the, 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 the fence that separates it and supplying water to it and sewage from it in a, in a suburban situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and that, that not sure, does that sort of answer the question about how Noosa Forest Retreat started? Yeah. So what, uh, what was your vision? Like what, was, what were you doing in life and what made you say, hey, we want to go get this piece of land that's out in the middle of nowhere away from yeah. everything. And how did you meet your, how did you meet the other owners? Like give us, give us a little bit of a backstory. A little bit of a backstory. Okay. So I, I had come out of the military, Will, myself. Um, I had gone back to uni uh, and I was studying psychology and religious studies. So I was very interested in what a good life is, what a, what a happy life is. I, I become disillusioned with manufacturing or design in the military. Like I was around fighter jets of the highest caliber um, and yet they were getting used for the most brutal of, of acts basically. Yeah. Um, so I became fascinated with, I guess I, I, I had a midlife crisis, you could say, like I was around um, soldiers who had done wartime who took their own life and that weighed on me very, very heavily as a young man, um, just just being that close to death and that close to people willing to take or, or, you know, ending up, I don't know how much will there is, but resulting in taking their own life, that, yeah. that perspective at that young age for me was, um, it was either, it was, it was mentally shattering, but it was soul awakening. It was, um, was I needed a way of viewing the world that encompassed death. And all of a sudden that turned my interest to health and holistic health and, you know, psychology, the idea of mind, body, soul. Uh So the transition there for me was um, I I met and spent a lot of my free time while I was still in the military with uh, Hare Krishna devotees who had – had one key concept, and that was simple living, higher thinking. Simple living, higher like thinking. Yeah. yeah. And it fitted in with the old, you know, I was very interested in, still still am, very interested in Taoism, this 
this whole concept of yin yang that the good's always going to contain the bad, the bad's always going to contain the good. Um, that's the that becomes the second principle of permaculture that the opposite's always true. That that any challenge brings with it a range of solutions. Any challenge brings with it the opportunity to transcend the problem, not just fix the problem. You know, and that that sort of metaphysics, which even goes as far as to say there is no problems, there's only the perception of problems. Yeah. You know, it's has fascinated me, and the, the the devotees were were a group of people who still are part of an organisation. So that impressed me. It's like, okay, these somewhere someone in this organisation's had some organisation skills. Like they're all over the planet. Um, they're they're able to offer. I met them. They were offering meals um, when I was in the military. We participated in some of the local sports events. And in one of the running events, the, the devotees were on the side of the road giving out free oranges, hmm. which which I just thought was lovely. I, and when I recognised some of them in town on a weekend off, I started speaking to them. And this is pre-Google for me, Storm. So it was pre it was pre the ability to look anything up. I'm not sure. You've got yeah. to paint the picture. I've, I've come out of a country town into – Australia's capital territory, literally, to the ACT um, mm-hmm. and joined the military at, a, at an officer training level and I've just gone straight in from this country, quiet life, you know, community into this high-tech international, you know, the international military's quite, quite um, impressive really in terms of what they can achieve materially. Uh, what year was this? Hey, yay, yay, you'd have to look that up. <laughs> I'm not sure. I can do the math. Well, that was straight out, straight after high school for another three years. So I'm, I'm 52, 53 this year. So you're talking – I spent four years altogether in the military mm-hmm. um, and then left that to, to go and do a health sciences degree. So as I said, I was studying psychology and religious studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I met Bill Mollison – um, at a down to earth festival. So that okay. must have been, well, now that must have been 80s somewhere, 80s, maybe <laughs> early 90s. But, um, yeah, so way before, you know, computers, Google, cell phones. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nice. So, and Bill spoke at a, a festival, a down to earth festival, which was, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have to hitch in, bus in. It was quite a, there's quite a few, legendary alternative gatherings which tend to have disappeared as the as the decades have passed because it's hard to get them insured but um oh yeah that that was a a festival that as a young man fairly new out of the out of the military went to and there's literally people running around naked there was <laughs> there was there was courses in how to start a revolution like advertised seminars and talks um, and there was there was all these all these little subgroups and sub talks about permaculture and this new way to grow food, modelled off a forest, that would mm-hmm. re- lead to less of our traditional sort of working the field, you know what we've come to think of as farming, like you know ploughs, tractors, chemicals, yeah. you know, in- industrialised farming. Yeah, absolutely, industrialised monoculture. And, and and chemically intensive farming, and I think the three are all mm-hmm. different. I think you can have an in, you can have a organic farming that's becoming 
industrialized, you know, like even even the step beyond that, like I think we're seeing artificial intelligence enter that game now. But I think, yeah. I think the key concepts though are, are you working in a holistic way? Are you working to support the life in the soil and build it up or are you working mm-hmm. to just get a yield, just get the biggest yield you can? And if that is your primary goal, like profit, it tends to be, well, history's shown it tends to be at the expense of the soil. Yeah, so I think what I've what I've really enjoyed um, studying and seeing this past year is, um, so we had um, Jean-Martin Fortier come on here, and he kind of balances the um, the intent to care for the soil, to care for the land, the, to create or you know to harvest bio and like it's. <laughs> My heart, I'm talking right now, but to have beautiful, wholesome, nutrient-dense food and at the same time building a community and sharing the love of farmers and taking care of the land that it's on. And so I feel like it's not new, but it's becoming more mainstream to have profit-based farms that are still doing good for the earth and the communities that are surrounding them. And I think that's, that's something that I've really enjoyed seeing. And so it's, it's nice to be able to see a balance between, you know, the, that capitalistic need and still being, living a value filled life. I don't know if you're familiar with James work, but um, it's something that I've really enjoyed watching and learning from. Yeah, beautiful. I think that you've used the word holistic and and, and integral. Like there's a there's a philosopher that that's sort of approaching or developing, I think, holistic thinking to new realms is Ken Wilber. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. No, I haven't. No, but it's always nice to learn. Yeah. Check him out. I think I think you guys would love him. I think your listener base would love him if if they're not already aware of him. Okay. But he he talks about um, development being in lines and stages, and that there's a there's an unfolding that you can actually measure scientifically in our society. You can measure it culturally, mm-hmm. and that as as the inner world develops, the outer world develops. And it it's fits in really nicely with this permaculture principle of the opposite's always true. It's there's, there's almost an arrogance to think that we could actually be doing something wrong because whether it's the motor car or the electricity or the, the mobile phone or the computer, they're, they're all over the planet. And they were so many people from so many different directions have been developing them. I think – the opportunity we have before us now is is to integrate technology and integrate design in an appropriate manner for a way that produces nutrient-rich food in a way that builds mm-hmm. topsoil and improves oxygen. And I think we, we basically have to go that way. There is, there is so many of us and we are having such an impact on landscape that, you know, if we want to – if we want to survive, never mind thrive, I think this is the the, the, the natural 
evolution of, of simple healthcare. Healthcare yes. has got to become cultural and political and integral to, to how to how we live, not just how we produce the food, but where we produce the food. You know, you can walk into a health food store in Australia, Storm, you can walk in and buy a tin of organic tomatoes from Italy. It's it's just crazy. Like tomatoes <laughs> grow in Queensland like wildfire. In a, and yet we will, you know, ship tomatoes ship from, yeah, yeah. To, to a processing plant, can them, ship them to a, a dock, ship them again, well, it's probably truck them until that point, then ship them across to Australia and truck them to a store and then sell them as a clean tomato. And yet ecosystemically what we've done to the whole planet for that supposed clean tomato, it's a bit of a it's, – it's not holistic thinking. We're, and this is what we look at in permaculture. What is, what is the toxicity or the byproduct from the cradle to grave of any action? So, yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is like nothing is inherently like good or bad. It just depends on how we use it. You know, whether, you know, the cars, tractors, like all this like giant infrastructure that we have, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just how we use it. Do we use it for good or bad? Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, about how, you know, you have, Australia has tomatoes. So why are tomatoes being shipped from thousand miles away? And, you know, all these fossil fuels are being used in the process. So you have what should be a clean, pure, um, you know, bag of tomatoes. But everything, all the inputs that it took to get from point A to point B is, isn't, you know. And it, I'm sure that somebody who is buying an organic tomato, they you know, they don't normally think about the cost of what it took to get there. And that's, I think that's why shopping local, um, whether it's like your local farmer's market or just trying to buy things that are created where you are living is so important to the environment just when it comes to, um, when it comes to fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly, Storm. And a lot more than that too, it's, to degree that you you buy local, you tend to be eating in season. Mm-hmm. And the more our science explores the nature of ecology, the nature of ecosystems, the more profound we discover that, that the intelligence that's operating within the systems, the balancing mechanisms, the communication pathways. You know, so for instance, what, what we've discovered in recent years with forests and how they communicate through the mycelium network. You know, a tree will literally, yeah, a tree will literally share nutrients, moisture and information with its own family Mm -hmm. and if its own genetic family. And if the tree is strong enough and that, and it's direct family are okay, it will share nutrient water and information out to the greater forest. So much like you can think of a, you know, a strong couple, if they if they get organised, they they if they're able to survive themselves and get some extra energy, they can start to function as a strong unit in a community, and mm-hmm. that 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 energy can expand. That's exactly what forests do. It, it's just that level of communication, that level of interaction, and if you ex- if you extend that holistic thinking to the planet, you know, 
I'm not sure if you're aware, Storm, but one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in, the legal developments in society around recognising life. So we've had, a, we've had a few very interesting cases, one where a river has, has been recognised as having the rights of life. Oh, if, yes. I, I read something about that. That was incredible. Yeah. So if you, if you take James Lovelock, the whole Gaia approach to Earth, his view is that the story goes that when the, the Earth was first seen from space, and this is, this is, again, these recent movements in history. So um, man convincingly, as far as I'm concerned, um, landed on the moon the, the year I was born. Hmm. It's, um, right. you know, where Elon Musk is having a, a pretty good crack right now at, um, you know, developing a vision of going to Mars. Mm-hmm. And, and I take my hat off to what's going on there. It, it's there's a there's a a meant to be or there's an unfoldment which I think when you look beneath the surface it, of ecology, it tells us it's actually it's not a well. It actually is the view of many past indigenous societies that everything's connected and everything's one. But what mm-hmm. we're discovering from that that it's actually valid from a scientific point of view. I yes. think our society since the Industrial Revolution has tended to dismiss a lot of, I guess you could almost say, earth-based spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And we're, we're now starting to see that, look, there's no way we're the, we're the intelligent species on the planet in some sort of a, you know, what I would call a traditional English hierarchy. You know, we mm-hmm. are... We are an an intelligent part of a much greater intelligence, and just that insight that that which is given to us by modern day ecology is a very beautiful bridge back to indigenous societies who had the same view, but without the science to back it up. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you say, taking you back maybe a minute or so. You said that these plants they share uh, nutrients and water and information with each other. Like, what kind of information, like, have you been learning about? Like, what that they pass back and forth? They um, that so if a tree in a forest is under uh, under attack, um, a tree like us, the intelligence of our immune system. Well, what what do you do if you get really cold? What would you do unconsciously? Put a blanket on or like rub my arms together, like that, curl that up, may, I guess. So that may be consciously. What would you do unconsciously if you got really, really cold? Uh, I guess goosebumps. Yep. Maybe yeah. start to shiver. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then consciously you may seek to find fire or to, to, to increase the shivering by rubbing your hands or put a jumper on. And collectively, we'll gather wood, we'll light a fire, we'll, we'll anoint a fire keeper, we'll – develop technology, make a heater, mass produce it and ship it around the planet. Mm-hmm. So in, intelligence is operating at all times everywhere. Um, and it's interesting in human form, we have this thing called self-awareness self-awareness or self-conscious behaviour. But it's good with that example of what do you do when you're too cold or what do you do when you're too hot to see that that intelligence is even operating in, within us unconsciously. And it's it. For instance, if we get attacked, and that brings me back to a tree. If a tree in a forest gets attacked, it will intelligently try to 
identify and experiment with the source of attack and create balance, maintain health, maintain a homeostasis. So a tree will alter its pH, it will alter its biochemistry, it can change the taste of its leaves, for instance, if the leaves are getting attacked. Mm-hmm. Wow. It can literally, like our own immune system, they can, and this is this is a this is where our society is starting to have a bit of a schism too. Like, what is health? And if you look at any system, including the individual human, and if you if you see that system as a development of a greater intelligence, it's very humbling trying to prop up that intelligence. We we've almost get to a point where we've got to take a, a very humbling approach and say, look, we, we've got to the point of understanding the system's more complex than what we thought. Maybe we <laughs> should start working with it and just listening to the signals and the feedback systems that are already there in the system. So an example there is like a mother. Does, does a mother understand the biochemistry of a child and you know genetically give the child exactly what, fingerprint of minerals and nutrients they need every day consciously? No, she doesn't. I'd suggest that she is present as a human being with her eyes, her ear, her touch, and basically baby's present with a cute gurgles or a scream. If baby's baby's screaming, life is communicating the way it's supposed to be. We don't have to chop the baby open and figure out why it's screaming. We've got everything we need to listen pay attention and examine baby. Is baby too wet? Is baby hungry? Does baby want a hug? And I think as an organic farmer, that's sort of what we're moving back towards. It's being on and with nature and responding to her to to help her find balance, you know, putting Mm -hmm. putting a finger in the soil. If it's too dry, we've got to bring in some irrigation. Um, or we've got to bring in some more mulch so it doesn't get dry, or long-term we've got to plant more plants so we can have short-term, medium-term, long-term strategies. Yeah, when you were describing the transfer of information, the transfer of of nutrients from tree to tree um, using the mycelium network, it kind of made me think of, um, and maybe this is a little bit too woo-woo, but whatever, um, of breastfeeding, and the interaction between um, enzymes and um, antibodies from like the child's mouth letting um, I'm, I, it's it's really incredible. I mean, I'm sure you know some people, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows this, but I don't <laughs> but um, about how if a child is sick, um, they, when they nurse, um, over the course of a few hours or so, the mother's, um, the mother's own, why can I not, I'm so sorry. I do this like every recording where I'm like, I can't speak, (laughs) but, um, her, her own immune system, um, transfers antibodies through her milk to the newborn or to the infant. And so it kind of made me think about that about that um, connection and responsiveness that humans at this biological level, we do without even knowing it. And here you have, um, you know, plants and forests that are doing kind of the same thing that, you know, you have an older established tree and then you have 
um, younger trees, younger saplings. And that older tree, what you're describing, you know, goes and gives their nutrients to its offspring. And it kind of just, I guess, establishes the fact that, you know, there's that there is this intelligent design that, you know, we're just now kind of becoming more aware of, um, whether you are a plant or a human, but just that, that transfer of information of nutrients, um, it's just really interesting to me, and that's what it kind of made me think of. Yeah, it's it's. I find it beautiful because it's again, I. One of the things I picked up along the way was a, a fascinating fascination with Ayurveda, and I did mm-hmm. some I did some studies in Ayurveda, and we utilize Ayurvedic practices into, even into our farming, but you know definitely into how we inform our daily routines and our diet with it, with our own family and right down to even the types of foods that we grow. But the Ayurvedic tradition, you know, has got some really interesting crossovers with modern-day epigenetics, you know, and this idea that we actually have many, many inherent capacities um, that can unfold when the environment's right. So, for mm-hmm. instance, that that baby getting breastfed storm, if if mother is very at peace and very calm, you know, and you're in a calm environment and the breast milk's got all the nutrients we, it needs, we'll know that the development of that child will tend to prioritise, you know, psycho-emotional development, you know, being more intelligent, yes. being more creative. Much like a, a young boy who's raised in a monastery, if he's a raised in a peaceful environment, he actually develops a neural system which has more capacity for peace. So he yes. develops, yeah. It's like that That all leaves could potentially be on the same branch, but they're not, and different branches encourage. It's not just a different worldview. The, the worldview is contained and, and integral to the genetic unfolding of the of the life form, you know, whether you've got more muscle or more brain tissue or – and that that alone fascinates me, you know, that that holistic look at what does an environment what, – what sort of environment are we creating and in return, what sort of humans does that environment create? If a little baby – Yeah. If a little baby human's in threat, not just nutritionally but emotionally and, you know, the, the, the breath pathways, the quality of the air, the – EMFs. If we're if there's so many onslaughts to health, it can't help but create a child or create a generation that's going to be more defensive and less creative. And that's um, you know, this this sustainability question: what is sustainable? And beyond that, what's regenerative? What's truly healthy? You can't separate the land from the people. And the more we look into it, we find out that 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 landscape that has life systems maintained and developed where the soil's full of microbes and it's full of fungies. Mm-hmm. That's the soil that produces the healthy food and, and that food produces healthy, well-adjusted humans. And uh, ironically, a healthy, well-adjusted human, you know, what some of our top personality evaluations are looking for key, key life behaviours like how creative are you, how authentic are you, 
how connected are you to other? And I'd like to suggest, like normally we think of other as in, in psychology as other people, but if you think of the other as other life, I think you could extend that to how connected you are to natural ecosystems. So in permaculture, in, in agroforestry, in syntropics, when we create a healthy ecosystem, we create something that allows its inhabitants, all flora, all fauna, to be in touch with the air, the fire, you know, the sun, the, the water, the earth, in their living integral way. So you, you, you're deeply connected with, with a greater life that, that it, and there's something deeply satisfying about that. So what, uh, on your, your piece of land that you guys have, what are some actions that you take in order to, you know, not be intrusive, but to kind of, to breed that kind of interconnectedness with nature? Okay. So for a start, everything has got to be organic. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of advice out there to try and bring non-organic inputs into fast-track growth. The whole, and by organic, um, the definition I like of organics is, is that organisms, organic short for organisms, and that with whatever, so they're guidelines that we follow, Will, and one of the key guidelines is, is the biomass of the system increasing? With each passing year, is there literally more life on the soil? And that's a permaculture vision that a healthy ecosystem wants to progress towards a forest. So we talk a lot about food forests in permaculture. Mm-hmm. And, a, and, and it's the exact opposite of where our society is at at the moment. Um, Storm, like generally our society at the moment is moving or has moved a long way towards and is still moving towards grain consumption, which grains yeah. grass. It's a short-term, shallow-rooted, you know, Crop. So if you look at wheat, wheat gives us all our bread, our pizza, our pasta. You know, you add the rice to that, you add oats to that, there's our cookies and cakes and, you know, a bit of lettuce, you know, um, a potato. It's, it's not a grass, but it's an annual crop that we dig up. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's tw- those 12 short-term annual plants give, give Westerners 80% of their diet now. Yes, yeah. And they're turning the planet to a – a laser-leveled monocrop of, of grass. And you can see in our society now you've got a resistance to that. You've got people going, we're eating too many grains, where the whole paleo movement is almost a swing completely in the opposite direction now. It's like, yeah, you know, we've eaten too – we shouldn't eat grains at all. We should Let's eat 100% meat. Like you've got, you've got <laughs> full-on meat-eating groups now. No, the carnivore the, diet. Carnivore diet. Um, so it's, you know – the paleos make this argument that we, we never ate – we started agriculture about 10,000 years ago, so before then we ate a lot of meat and didn't eat grains. It, they're only half correct. We started, you know, mass agriculture and you could argue the, the building of cities which allowed to store grains about 10,000 mm-hmm. years ago, but the grains we started growing were the grains we had been familiar with for tens of thousands of years before. We didn't just wake up one day with a lightning bolt insight to how to grow and eat a grain you know we've yeah. been we've been wild harvesting them and the the um the academic the, the scientific records demonstrate that like there's a few good books out there i think one's called paleo fantasy um and it looks at the science and the, the mortise and pestles that go back 
a long, long time showing that we were wild harvesting and eating grains. Yeah, I, I remember being taught that um, we would wild harvest, you know, different grains and berries. And then once, you know, they were eliminated, people saw that where they were going to the bathroom is where crops were growing. And so they kind of put two and two together is is what, what, what I've always been taught and, you know, kind of made sense to me that, you know, while they weren't doing this mass agriculture, we were still eating grains and, you know, like it's, it's been part of our evolution. Yes. You know, it's not, what's well, not a monocrop that's been sprayed with glyphosate for the past 10 years, but grains have been an integral part of humanity since forever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and any thinking that tends to get too black and white, you know, this is good or that's mm-hmm. bad, you know, that literally the second principle we, we, we keep coming back to that we're teaching, when I talk about principles in permaculture, I tend to think there's, there's five attitudinal principles that, that are sort of listed in the design manual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from those five, we move to, you know, Bill Mollison had his 10 practical principles and David Holmgren had his 12. So they, there's, there's no black and white answer to how many principles is. There's sort of this tree of understanding that's by the time of David and Bill's already got two major branches. But the, the core attitudinal principles, that second principle, you know, the problem is the solution or the opposite's always true. This, yeah. this, this is the, the whole philosophy of Taoism, the whole yin-yang, the whole basis of yoga and Ayurveda is, is that, you know, you have this spirit that manifests into the world as the positive and negative, and it starts with birth and death, you know, creation and destruction, and in, in between you have maintenance. And mm-hmm. right from our atomic level physics, you can see that everything in the universe comes back to three tiny particles, a, a one that's a neutral, it's a balance point, a negatively charged little particle, you know, an electron and a positive charged proton. So mm-hmm. all of our elements, even from Western science of the periodic table, you know, our 100, 100 plus elements, they all come from those three base elements where it's yeah. all of life is a this balance point, this positive yes. and this negative. And somehow through that, there's this play of intelligence and those building blocks are brought together you know, across the eons and it's, you know, we've only got gold on our planet, it's argued now by, by you know, some of our leading scientists because at some point any gold on our planet has been in a star at least four times bigger than our sun. And when that sun has burned itself out, you know, the, the, the dominating force becomes the gravity which collapses the star in even further and creates so much pressure that gold's created. Mm-hmm. And that these cycles of creation and destruction that are they go on in the life of an element like you or I or the leaf on a tree or a tree. But even as the elements come and go, and, and that's whether it's a leaf comes and goes or a tree comes and goes or a whole forest comes and goes, syntropically you can see there's this ongoing development. Like even when a sun extinguishes itself and collapses in on itself, even in that collapsing of what could be a whole solar system and it's going to happen for hours one day mm-hmm. you, you get a creation of higher order elements you know here we sit speaking to each other across the planet you know, <laughs> trying to keep our static down and 
you know, try and offer each other a service because of a sun that's collapsed and has created gold, which is all through the ICs in our computer tech. Like that is that is very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> it's very humbling. And I think, holy dooly, like we, we're wise to listen to our elders. I think the real elder on this planet is the forests and those fungal networks we're talking about. So on your, your piece of land, you do a lot of education. You teach your, these five principles. Do you, what other stuff do you do on this piece of land? Do you actually harvest for like outside people or do you f- harvest just to support the people who live on your piece of land? Okay, it's a good question. So that comes back in, in permaculture. We talk about every property having its own design brief. So, mm-hmm. you know, its own goal and I suggest strongly that 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 you know that the typical response to that is I want to be self-sufficient. We encourage students to not be self-sufficient, to recognise that nature is teams, and to try and build teams which are meeting of one's own needs, but also while meeting the needs of the environment. And I think this will one of the key things we teach in permaculture is the three ethics of permaculture. Which you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a yield. But the first ethic of permaculture is let's do it in a way that cares for nature, mm-hmm. not, not at her expense. And we can do that. And the next ethic is let's do it in a way that, you know, cares for all species. So we, if we knock down a rainforest where we had a, all sorts of primates and maybe cheetahs or jaguars and if to put in a grain crop that's organic – we may say, oh, we're caring for the soil, we're building topsoil, we're not using toxins, but we've... You're not. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've wiped out a whole lot of other species. We've wiped out a lot more complex system. Mm-hmm. We've reduced the biomass. We've induced, reduced the biodiversity. So this care for all species, care, care for biodiversity is the second ethic. And the third ethic was originally, back in the 70s, it was formed as um, fair share, there's an increasing number of permaculturists that want to call that fair share now future share because it's the same thing. We could divide up the whole forest today and share it fairly with each other, but if, we, if we're knocking down trees or, or exploiting the, the base health of the system, there's no fair share for the future. So this yeah, comes... There's- there's a quote that I really like. It says that we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's what, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, we're, we're at one with our ancestors and our children to come, you know, and, and what, what, what their DNA and RNA gets to express epigenetically, like the, the, the options that they have are very dependent on what we set in place or undermine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another thing along the same lines of, you know, getting these giant yields, you know, people are always like, especially with like the, the small scale, uh, you know, people call them micro farms, like, or, you know, just like the small bio intensive farms, like you can't feed the world with that. But again, you don't need to feed the whole world. You just need to feed your community and who's around you then, you know, other people can feed who's around them. And, you know, that's how you feed the world. You don't feed the world with this giant tomato farm in Italy that ships tomatoes around the whole world to supply the whole world with tomatoes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's, I, I feel like we've kind of gotten off on the wrong track when it comes to the idea of feeding the world. And I think it's a great idea and I think it has, um, good roots in, in that idea that, you know, good intentions, um, what I mean, but I think that if we just get back to the point where we are supporting and establishing small farms all over America, all over the world, um, whether it be, you know, on every continent, the only thing I can think about is how much better off our nutrition will be, you know, in the first place. And then when you look at the effects that, you know, we were talking about earlier that having the shipping things all over the world has on the environment on, you know, different levels, you know, we, if I think if we just focus on that small scale farming on small scale food production, it could alleviate so many different issues that will, you know, it'll take It'll take care of land degradation. It'll take care of our fossil fuel um, emissions. It'll take care of just poor nutrition. And I think, uh, I, I feel like that's one of our biggest goals here within the, the Feel Good Community podcast is that we really want people to get back to their roots and to focus on where their own feet are versus trying to think globally when it comes in terms of food production. Yeah, I think you've got to, it's very wise to, when exploring ideas, to do what I'd call a reality test, just to really check, do I understand everything involved here? Mm -hmm. Can, Can I move forward? And I think, you know, one thing I realised coming out of the military is that, you know, what do, what do we fight about? What do we need? Well, physically, I, I need to maintain that temperature balance. I need to have some food and some water and some air. And st- struck me very quickly how toxic a lot of those key needs of health were, like how toxic the air is becoming in many parts of the world, the, the what we're doing to the water what we're doing to the food it's um you know one of the things i that i think is beautiful about people doing a permaculture course or putting in a a pot with a couple of herbs by their back door is you start to interact with life and before Mm -hmm. that even feeds you it starts to attune your senses to the you know in permaculture we talk a lot about patterns it starts to attune your senses to the patterns of nature and i it's it's borderline demonstrable there is a lot of study showing correlation between those that live in nature and and mental and emotional health it's it's a bit hard to argue scientifically causality yet but there's definitely correlation between healthy people and healthy environments and it's i think to yeah, me, yeah. it's common sense. It's my, my heart that's part of that same system wants to love the system and it wants to be loved back by the system. To me, it's abhorrent to be part of a, an industrial chemical system that treats the earth and the ecosystem as a thing to be exploited. It's, yeah, just, yeah. it's just abhorrent and it leaves 
my sense of humanity as being very isolated and very lonely and in trouble. Yeah, and especially when you connect that the this industrial food system that we have created that is so detrimental to the the world, the food system itself, I mean we ha- we produce enough calories to feed the whole world. But correct, correct. So so like so much of the actual food transportation and conservation and you know uh refrigeration like that type of thing and distribution is the word i'm looking for the food distribution network is so poor that a lot of the food either spoils in trip or we're too picky about what it looks like or Mm -hmm. when people buy it they don't eat it and it goes bad in their refrigerator and it gets wasted we lose about in america we lose about 40 percent of food just due just due to um, transportation and so yeah we lose 40 percent of food and a lot of that takes place in transportation and you know like that's part of the problem with transporting food so far you know whether it's you know a few states over or to another country you know, like there's a problem here. We see this as a problem, um, but I don't think enough is being done about it. No, and I think it's a bit like expecting the the wolf to um, to to stop eating the chickens because the fact that he is could be seen as a problem. The mm. wolf the wolf doesn't see it as a problem. <laughs> He's like, I'm just eating dinner. That's. <laughs> That's right. I see it as great that you round them up every night and don't repair the hole that I can just duck in under. Um, you know, th- you, you guys are legends. It, so the, the perspective here becomes really important, you know, and this is where we get back to that metaphysics. What, it, what is a problem? I think um, if we – that, that second attitudinal principle, again, the opposite's always true. So we say if, you know, that – the very looking of a, of a transport as a problem, and there's definitely consequences of that. It means that the food will that gets to the farm, it's not only burn all these petrochemicals from forklifts and the creation of containers and shipping containers all across the landscape and running all the refrigerators at the various drop-off points along the supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just all that pollution that's created. It's the fact that the only food that can survive that trip it's got to have certain qualities. It's got to be transportable. Now, this comes back to we talk about in the PDC um, auric value, which, which is interesting because it's one of the scientific measures of the oxidative neutralising or, or the regenerative ability of food. Food has – life has all sorts of qualities beyond the supply of physical nutrients. So when we're looking at auric value of there's foods, there's an amazing tree in Australia, just the humble mulberry tree. It's drought tolerant, it's flood tolerant, so easy to grow. In winter, you can make take multiple cuttings from the tree and spread them very easily. It produces an abundance of, of a beautiful, sweet, rich berry. Increasingly, Australians have never tasted a mulberry. That You'll never see a mulberry at a supermarket because you've got to eat it within 24 hours of picking it. And really? Yeah, yeah. So if you look up uh, mulberries, where are you guys at the moment, Will and Storm? You're we're in Okinawa, Japan. You're, but you're American, is that correct? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's like the the mulberry tree would definitely grow would be growing right across America, but um, you can look up the auric value of a mulberry tree. Like it's it's higher than raspberries. It's higher than um, blueberries, which tend to be the much marketed high antioxidant fruits in Australia. Um, and they're the dearest fruits because even those have got a short lifespan. So they're the two fruits that we fly around the country. Most food in Australia we truck, but the blueberries and raspberries we tend to fly because even though they've got a bit longer life than a mulberry, they've still got – you've got a short period of time to get them sold or you're not making a profit, you're making a, a loss. Yeah. What do you it, call the auric value? I'm not yeah, familiar with that. If you look up, um, look up O-R-A-C – it might, it might be OC, the oxidative reactive oxidizing capacity or something. Look, t- do a type on your computer for auric. Got it. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that you can get food oh, yeah. ranked. Chocolate is very high in, in its regenerative ability, dark chocolate. Yeah. I Not see that. In auric, yeah, an auric value means the total antioxidant capacity of a food per 100 grams. Yeah. So it's... It's now there's 260,000 and growing documented types of food. 260,000. Wow. We've got you've got the Ayurvedic tradition that talks about the thousands of herbs and it documents them all for their different effects physiologically, psychologically, spiritually. You know, like Ayurveda talks about different plants having different effects on different parts of our system and, and looking at our system as being integrated of, of mental physical and spiritual so it's there's what i like to present guys is that if we focus on what is good for us and what is going to develop us you know and if you accept that to be optimally creative to be optimally present you need good nutrition you need vitality in your body you need inspiration in your being then all of a sudden eating fresher food and cleaner food and more nutrient-dense food, it becomes the pathway forward for a better life. And that's, I think that is something that is very marketable um, and very. And I think that's one of the key services. I think the likes of your podcast can put it on the gender, get people to consciously think about how much of a value they have on feeling vitally alive. Um, it's a birthright, and if we're not getting those high auric value foods, you know, if we're not even, you know, increasingly we don't even eat real food. We eat what I'd more call the, the product of industry that, you know, may have a bit of food in it. Food-like substances. Food-like substances. You know, they're, they're more drug-like substances. They're actually more, yeah. you know, when those a lot of those preservatives and flavours and colours and they're, they're – they're chemicals produced in a lab. They're completely outside the life system. Mm-hmm. And yet um, the life system is something we don't understand. Not one scientist or team of scientists on the planet can create or bring back to life even one cell of life. There's mm-hmm. ultimately still more mystery there than there is scientific understanding. Yeah, what was the, what was the first thing to actually go from? Yeah, you know, a rock to a cell. <laughs> yeah. And the Ayurvedic what? tradition, which is, you know, the World Health Organization acknowledges the Ayurvedic tradition is one of our oldest and most integrated healthcare systems. Like 
the ancient Ayurvedic practitioners were the first people documented that we know of to do surgery, and they had a whole range of very refined metal surgical instruments. You know, the word shampoo and toothpaste, which are very known in the Western culture, they're Ayurvedic terms, you know, the first developments of herbal preparations to, you know, care for the body, you know, personal care routines. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, look, it's there's so much comes back to India. It's I think it, it's something I'd like to talk about a, a little bit, if that's okay, guys, because oh yeah, you know the whole the whole organic movement. Um, it's not that well known, but the whole organic movement was birthed in India. So, you know, we talk about this in the course that Albert Howard was um, an English agronomist in India as part of this English takeover philosophy. You know. Um, mm-hmm colonization and believing that the Indians were primitive and backwards and but Albert Howard was a source he was an agronomist he was there to to find the perfect cash crop to send back to the motherland and to cut a long story short he became impressed with the local people's food production he started putting doing scientific studies on it including putting the soil under a microscope and that was the first birthing of the awareness into the western mind that the soil was actually alive, this indigenous worldview that prayed to it and watered it even when there wasn't a seed planted. You know, we must keep mother alive. Mm-hmm. This this was profound from the Western viewpoint because we just saw it as dirt that you put the seed and the chemical into. Yeah. So Albert Howard under that microscope saw that it was full of life. So one teaspoon of good, vital, healthy soil has more microorganisms than there is humans on the planet, billions. Mm-hmm. One cup of chlorinated water can kill a lot of them. It's why we put chlorine in our articulated, in, you know, in our urban water supplies. Definitely all through Australia. Um, some other countries have got some ozone systems, and but you know, Australia's it's chlorine and fluoride for the masses in Australia. It's and the same you, for America too. Yeah. If now, it's it's very easy to argue the benefits of that because if you've got stagnant bodies of water that you're piping through 100-year-old pipes with, you know, mercury and lead joins and all sorts of viruses and bacteria, you've, you've got to kill it all. It's better to kill it all and it's better to have a little bit of bacteria than to die of all, all the poisons in the water. Right. Yeah. But, it, but it doesn't mean it's the best. It's, it's like if you're short in true vitamin C, if you've nearly got scurvy, a little bit of synthetic ascorbic acid may save your life. But if you're in reasonable health, there's initial evidence coming through that that same ascorbic acid, the synthetic vitamin C, will actually knock your health. It will bring you backwards. Where in both cases, the true vitamin C from an organic in-season orange will benefit you and lift your health. So mm-hmm. it's, there's this key concept that comes from the, you know, the Vedic tradition, the, the home of the organic movement in the West and that concept is time, place, and circumstance. Um, yeah. Comes back to Will, what we started speaking about. Nothing's good or bad in itself. It really depends on the perspective. We we need a system that, now that we've got finances, that spreads finances around and gives people an empowered means to trade. And, and the current financial system does wonders, but it also leads to increasing complexity. That leads to people not understanding the system. That leads to people being able to exploit the system. So it it leads to a system which could, if there was enough heart and regulation, 
lead to feeding of the world, and we know that there's still enough land to feed all the people on the, all the creatures of the planet. There's still more than enough. Mm-hmm. What there's not at the moment is an understanding that that's actually a possibility and a a heartfelt agreeance that that's a core value. Like, can we guys? Can we agree that whether we want to be a yeah, whether we want to be a soldier, an artist, an engineer, a lawyer, or a statesman, can we agree that life's going to be better if we have fresh air, clean water, and clean, nutrient-rich food? Can we agree that maybe that's sort of important for our quality of life collectively? Yeah. You would think, but I think that goes back into that, <laughs> that second principle that you're talking about. The problem is the solution. Like, especially, I think the water example is a really good example because. Yeah, you could say the problem is that, hey, we're dumping huge amounts of chlorine into our water. Or, you know, you could also say the, the pro- like that's a solution because the, there's a problem of the old pipes. But yep. then you think like maybe the old pipes are the problem. Like, is there another way to distribute water? Like, are there, you know, rainwater collection mm-hmm. services, you know, that type of thing. That And that's, the, that's there, the opening questions of permaculture. You know, guided by those three ethics, care of the earth, care of all creatures and fair share, what are my real needs? And separating needs from wants is huge in itself. You know, Mm -hmm. do I have, does my child have the need for that plastic Barbie doll? What's the real need there? The real need is, yeah, the real need is the child wants some attention. It needs some creative play. It can Mm -hmm. do that with finger puppets. It can do that with song. It can do that with rocks in a circle drawn in sand. So yeah. what are the real what are our real needs and often they come back to you know a good amount of healthy air, good amount of healthy water, good amount of healthy food and then a chance to connect and be creative and and love and be loved by each other, you know, which becomes the basis of community. How, how do we get our needs met in a way that looks after each other and looks after the environment? And that's that's the step off goal of permaculture. How do we create a culture that will meet our real needs. We need food. We need shelter, but not at the expense of each other, the environment, or, or, or the ecosystem as a, as a whole. I think so the, the problem. Yeah. I, I think part of the the problem is is that our needs are so simple. The Earth's needs are simple, and you can't profit off of that. You can't profit off of a child drawing drawing in the sand with a stick. Yeah. You know, you, you can't you can't profit off of just the need for healthy soil and seeds and sunlight. Those I I feel like a lot of our problems are is the overcomplication of our food systems, the overcomplication of what makes us and the earth happy. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's not it doesn't fit into capitalism's needs for that constant growth, that constant return of investment. It, it just those two things don't align, and I think that's where I think that's where a lot of our problems come from. Yep, that's it. I think alignment of values is a huge one. I think one of the beautiful things that the Vader culture does by presenting a a worldview that says that we've got this capacity to continue to develop our presence and continue to develop our, expand our love and our understanding, you know, and move towards this concept that's talked about called enlightenment. Mm-hmm. What, what this sort of a, 
cosmology or a cultural worldview does is it puts the highest value on being alive, present, intelligent, and able to contribute. And I think in by putting profit number one, you know, and empowering, creating a system that allows profit to go exponentially to, to individual people, it, it creates, it makes it really hard to take personal development seriously because at some level you've it becomes you've got to get enough money to survive when when all the food's under lock and key. Yeah. One, one of the interesting things is if you start growing your own food, you know, one of the key crops we grow at Noosa Forest Retreat, um, pumpkins, mangoes and bananas. We've got four different varieties of bananas, turmeric and ginger. So they, Will, you're talking about what some of the practices on the farm. They're all crops that grow really, really well with us. We get maximum output for minimum input. Um, mm-hmm. They're suited to the climate. Just because you don't want to just go grow your own food wherever you are, you really want to, you know, in our design, we really do a lot of work drilling down to see what is our actual climate, what does the, how does the climate vary across the year. And then we can start to design microclimates so we can grow species that would live in climates either side of ours but we don't want to go start to grow, you know, desert desert cactus in a in a cold climate where it's frozen for six months of the year. You know, in one of our <laughs> typical cool cold land climates, we we design with principles that aim to to build life force exponentially. But we've got to match that to to our bioregion. We've got to match that to our core climate, and then we've got to match it to our goals. There's no point going. I'm going to have a. I'm in a cold climate that grows potatoes. I'm going to have a system majoring in potatoes. If you or your family are allergic to potatoes, like, right, you know, right. you've really got to define. So Noosa Forestry Treat doesn't aim to be a commercial farm. Will to come back to I think one of your questions to expand it a bit more. It's designed as a as a community home, which we want. We encourage income off the property, and we've got individuals making money from food production on site but mainly to explore food production and explore spiritual living. Mm-hmm. So for, for myself personally, um, for Bernie who's on the property, for my wife Deb, we have been fascinated with mindful practice meditation our whole lives. Um, and to us it's almost you know what Mother Teresa I think would call an enlightened self-interest. It's self-interest to want to have high vibration food, clean water, clean air, because I believe it's going to create the best Ian, the best Deborah, the best Bernie that we can have. And that all, all money can do is buy a few tools or understandings from our value set to help to, to drive that value. So, for instance, I'm very excited. We've started switching over, over to lithium-ion tools on site, which gets rid of a, you know, a, a, the last remnants of petrochemical. We, we've generally tended to be hand tools and part of the design of Noosa Forest Retreat is to stay away from tractors and, you know, machinery. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be ploughing. You know, it's the same thing. You can plough up your organic field, but if you're burning petrol oil and you're driving a $60,000 four-wheel drive tractor that's going to end up landfill, there's still a lot of toxicity involved in the use of that machine and a lot of compaction. Yeah. One of one of the inspiring practitioners for permaculture was um, Fukuoko, 
um, who the book One Straw Revolutions written by him. Um, you, are you guys familiar with that work? I'm not. No. Look, look that up. One, One Straw Revolution. So. David and Bill were very aware of it. It was almost legendary status in their worldview. But this was a man that decided to go and live at one with nature and he, he wrote the book Natural uh, One Straw Revolution and, and he, he started to propose that, that Western agriculture was nowhere near as efficient as we're led to believe. You know, we're told one man on a tractor can feed a 1,000 people. But it's a myth. Fukuoka started to look at, well, how many people does it take to be in factories, in oil mines and driving the trucks so that that yeah. man can have that tractor? And how much toxicity is it? Is there at all of those stages, you know, the oil rig, the helicopters that take the workers to the rig, the refinery plants, the trucks, the, you know, and this is if we don't have an oil spill at any of those transition points. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the industrial plants that make the tractor, that make the tyres, that make the wheels, the, the plants that make the trucks that are going to then ship the tractors all over the world so that that organic farmer can plough up his field every six months. So it comes back to it's a bit like the organic tin of tomatoes from Italy that you can get in Noosa, Australia. You've got to do the ecosystemic analysis, cradle-to-grave analysis, yeah. and we've got, we've got to look. I think, you, Will, you said it. We've got to look at what we do locally, but ha- how everything that we're – integrated with every tool we're using who made the tool where did the tool come from you know it it hurts me still if we go to buy a new spade you know a good australian made hardwood handled good cast iron base tool may cost 70 80 dollars you can go to bunnings and get a made in china spade for with a four-year guarantee from bunnings for four dollars yeah yeah and it's it's like holy dooly that extra sixty dollars represents in the system some of my blood, sweat and tears. You know, it's like that $5 meal deal, $5, no shopping, no dishes, no food prep. Is that five? Is that $5 meal deal all bad? It depends on who you are. If you're a single mum about to get evicted because you can't pay your mortgage, rushing to get your kid to school and you haven't eaten anything for that day, that $5 meal deal may mean the kid gets through the day. It yeah. may... It, may prop you up a bit on an unhealthy system a bit longer becomes an interesting question. You know, what is it to fail? Can you fail in a system that's failing? Right. And also that going back to the shovel, like that $4 shovel, there's a reason it costs $4 and a reason. Yeah. Yeah. How much, yeah. How much is the person that made that $4 shovel getting, are they able to feed their families? Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's like all, all our fashion all our fashion items or, or a lot of our supposed culturally iconed items, you know, our high-end fashion that drives the fashion moguls and the fashion industry. But mm-hmm. it, it, this is everyday culture that this is – a lot of this comes from people who have anything, you know, Gucci clothing is manufactured by people who have anything but access to the, the Gucci lifestyle. Yeah. And yet yeah. those boutiques continue to thrive and spread. It's We still yeah. have a value on – some fantasy or some some value they deliver in terms of a sense of prestige or quality, that there's some myth there. I'd say it's a myth. It's not true. There is some belief there. A definition of a myth is something we believe to be true that's not, that there's some myth operating there, which again keeps us outside fair share and outside of care of nature, That the, the core ethics of permaculture. That's awesome. I think that really has something to do with 
I mean, it has everything to do with our values. When you grow up and when you're raised and, you know, idolizing these brands, idolizing the people that are wearing these brands or promoting them, you, you don't think about the person that's, that is making, you know, that is making that $245 white t-shirt, um, you don't, you don't think about that. And, but the only thing that you do think about is the prestige that you feel when you get to wear that, that, you know, designer Gucci (laughs) t-shirt. Um, and so I think that comes back to what your values are and what values you were raised with, because, you know, I, I didn't grow up with, we didn't grow up with a lot of money or anything, but throughout my life, I, I never really thought about who was making my clothes or, you know, how they were doing or how their families were doing. And it's definitely a a much more recent development that I finally had to sit down with myself and ask what my values are and ask what's important to me. And I think in this age of consumerism and consumer culture is that we're not having that conversation with ourselves. We're not asking ourselves, do I value this follower on Instagram liking my photo because I'm wearing this designer shirt or do I value the person that is in forced labor? You know, do like, where do my values lie? And I think that's a conversation that not enough people are having with themselves and that has led to, you know, the consumer culture and, yep. It's, it's hard when people are stuck in systems where they can where they can only afford that $5 meal deal versus, you know, a $20 healthy dinner. Um, and because, you know, you're stuck in that and that, that affects your mental clarity, that affects your health, your anxiety, depression, you know, the, that leads to having to take medications and, further feeling and being sicker. But all of those are just symptoms of an unhealthy consumer driven society. That's right. They're they're, they're they're our real hidden costs. And I like how you've brought it right down to, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and, and mental health. Like in Australia, we are coming apart at the seams with our mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the rise in emotional and mental health issues is demonstrably out of control. We, we, we are not on top of it. And I'd suggest that that's the real cost to this this romance, this obsession we've had with with stuff, you know, with, with shiny, colourful, not even so much more useful anymore, but just objects and stuff. Yeah. Consumerism, you know, and, and not having the models for – you know what? What is satisfaction? What is what is it to be really healthy? And and then you know when the penny drops and you realise that a lot of this stuff is undermining what you really need to be happy and healthy. Like what what life on this planet needs to be happy and healthy is is a very fragile balance maintained. But at the same time, it's so simple. You know, you don't you don't need a a ninety thousand dollar car. You don't need a Two hundred dollar T-shirt. 
I feel like those are, I've, I've talked about before, I feel like those are symptoms of greater underlying issues within our society. And you were talking about, um, Australia's, um, mental health pandemic, but it's like, what are those, what are those people feeding their bodies and brains every single day? And how, like, why, why are we seeing such a rise in mental health issues? Yeah. And I think that to explore eco values, it's, it's what we're teaching in permaculture. It's, it's trying to give a bioeducation and a bioeducation that opens the door to a bio experience, mm-hmm. a profound sense that it's nature's not out there. Nature's not something that I get my needs met from. I'm integrally a part of that nature. That nature is a reflection of my nature and myself of it. Mm-hmm. And that I'm it's always a dance, it's always this interaction. And in fact, you know, that one of the yogic teachings is, is is we're not the individual leaf interacting with the tree. We're, we're the intelligence of the whole tree manifest as all the leaves. You know, we're, we're not a drop of ocean water that makes the ocean. We're the intelligence of the whole ocean in every drop of water. Oh, wow. And, and this, this, this is the view of the, of the shaman. This is the view of the, of the religious teacher, the elder of, of most indigenous societies. You know, most religions, which tend to be, in my view, a step back from spirituality. To me, religion's the map, and spirituality's the the gold. It's the it's the it's the relationship that develops when you follow the map sincerely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's um nature has a profound, deep intelligence. Can I go astray a little bit and just share something that I think is really worth when we're having this Western Eastern discussion yeah, that, that, move, yeah, that moves anywhere near metaphysics or um, are you guys familiar with Wim Hof and his breathing practices and the science that's done around that? Yes. I'm a big fan. Beautiful. <laughs> I've, I've done a little bit of his breathing techniques, but you know, in that trip down that, that pathway, I was reading this book by a guy named James Nestor called breath. And he, in this book, he goes through time and basically documents all of these different, you know, doctors, physicians, shamans who work with these different breathing practices to do different things. So like one, uh, one example is that he used, he used a uh, breathing technique, not the author, but he documents this physician who used breathing techniques to cure scoliosis. And so cool. Like the amount of, that's like, um, you know, taking a breath in and like twisting a certain way and doing these exercises, like you basically use your lungs as like you can, they could actively like fill only one lung and use that one lung to push against their spine in a certain way by doing this exercise. But there's just so many examples of all these different breathing techniques. So they, they would come under the category of, of what in yoga we would call pranayama, like, which is breath work. Mm-hmm. And I've what heard is that a, before, yeah. yeah. So what is amazing, Wim Hof has basically made a study of pranayama, pranayama and he's able to demonstrate conscious activation of parts of the brain that 
were thought impossible. You know, there's scientific evidence for this now. So is the very stuff that's talked about in a lot of these ancient texts around yoga and mindfulness and the possibilities of the development of a human being, like prana, this word prana comes up often, and it's considered to be one of the – it's not just a loose energy, it's, it's the intelligent, loving energy of, of spirit. So from a Vedic perspective, the ecosystem – all of life is imbued with this intelligence that, that we're a part of, that, you know, our experience of, of, you know, Storm or Will or Ian, you know, we're life having an experience of these three characters that we've created. Like we're not Storm, Will or Ian in this bigger system. We are the bigger system that chunks our focus down into, into these little leaves, into these little elements. You know, what Wim Hof has done has been able to activate his immune system, you know, he's, he's got multiple world records for physical feats that no one else has been able to reproduce. And what's beautiful, I think, about for our whole culture at the moment is he he went into the, the labs at the unis and proved that he was able to train anyone to do the same thing. They had tested thousands and thousands of people. Geez, I'm, I'm really wave, waving the Wim Hof flag here, but I think it is that significant. <laughs> I think it is profound that he's... He's now in, in lab storm. You can look up the studies where he's had um, infect, like bacteria elements injected into his blood that make the average person sick very quickly. And no. through breathing, he's able to maintain his immune system at a very active level and just breathe breathe any of the, the onslaught out of his body. You know, it's William. Wim Hof. Wim Hof. W-I-M-H-O-F. Yeah. But it it's talks about a lot of what he has discovered is that the power of raising your energy just a little bit and that the fact that just simply through your breath and some very coordinated breathing that energizes the system, that there's biochemical switches within our being that we'd forgotten about, switches that are documented there in ancient texts. You know, a lot of the shamans and the spiritual people that you, you can still access today, no, it's their everyday stock and trade. But in the West, we had dismissed it as of the past and therefore primitive and, and mm-hmm. possibly not even real. What Wim Hof's opened up is this concept that, oh, my God, that the, the, a energetic system, and we are a complex, complex system. You know, we're not a complicated systems like a motor car. There's many, many parts, but you can still pull it all apart and examine it line- linearly. A complex right. systems like a great, great big bowl of spaghetti of all different colours and I, it's really tricky to know what's going to happen if I grab a piece and pull it. Mm-hmm. You know, ecosystems are complex systems. They are, there, there is so much going on, it's a bit hard to know what the, you know, this is the butterfly effect idea. It's hard to know what one thing will do. And this is the problem of the reductionist approach or chemical-supported industrial agriculture. It's trying to understand all the elements and control them all and create productive systems and in, Increasingly, we've done that by trying to provide chemical tillage and chemical to create support for the seed. But we're now at a point in history where we're recognising you can't separate that seed from the soil and the healthiest seed grows in healthy soil that's full of organisms that support the plant to be really, really balanced and really, really vital. And then if humans eat those plants that are fresh and vital, we end up fresh and vital Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ayurveda, the whole Vedic tradition talks about the absolute importance of vital, fresh, in-season food to maintain your prana 
um, as a requirement for spiritual development. You know, it's it's like where I, I think of us, we're like a we're like a sports car that's got the average person doesn't know that gear four and gear five are even there. We're sort of stuck in gear three. The the mother that's through financial necessity or time pressures stuck buying those five dollar meal deals, see she's sort of stuck at level gear two. She doesn't even know gear three's there. But if we start having role models for what health is and vitality is and, and you know, podcast or champion our natural health practitioners and our natural health businessmen and show what it looks like to live and and live and die in a healthy ecosystem, just if we can showcase the beauty of that, I hope we can start to inform people's values, guys that are in the city, so that they can go, well, you know what, There's, this $5 meal deal gets me to work so that I can pay my mortgage so that I can get to work again mm-hmm. next week. But I – it lets me function in this system, but there's better ways to have a system. And I can go and join yeah. – I can go and join – I don't need my own land. I can – in fact, what we try and teach in permaculture is we strongly recommend you don't try and do it with yourself. You don't go and do, do this one-owner, one-title idea. That that's that divide-and-conquer philosophy is the is inherent in that colonising system. It's inherent in the military's operandi, divide-and-conquer you know, divide physically, divide psychologically, divide financially. And if you look at permaculture against versus the mainstream suburbia system, our mainstream suburbia system is fantastic at creating wealth, fantastic at creating job specialisation, division, psychological and physical separation and wealth. But then we don't even distribute the wealth that we get. Even the wealth ends up divided between the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And we can see that right before our eyes, even in the last 12 months with COVID. Like the, the, the billionaires of the US have increased their net worth by more than 30%, yeah. while the unemployment rate has, has hit and default rates on mortgages is hitting an all-time high. Yeah. You know, the, 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 again, you, it's, you've got to – how do you have definitions of health that look at the masses, not just look at the, you know, the, the S&P return, which is – for the, the few that are relatively involved in stocks, business is great. It's better than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. But that's a value system. Like in Australia, we get that on the news every night. What's the stock report? Profit is the key thing that we've got in front of people's eyes every day. That value is pushed onto us um, yeah. by, almost with a pusher mentality where we're not shown the other values. You know, where's the starvation report that comes through every day? Where's the... The, the, the quality of the oxygen on average around the planet report every day. Where's the, you know, the mental health report? The Where's mental health, yeah. You know, the happiness report. Yeah. Yeah, that actually – there's a couple countries that actually do announce that and they started measuring – instead of measuring their GDP, just the amount of money they bring in and the you know the, what they produce, it's the National Happiness Index and like how happy are their people. Where That's is that? Can you can you remember? I saw that. I saw a clip on that, and it was amazing. It was just, it was a monastery based culture. Yeah, I believe there's one. One of them was in Southeast Asia, and another was like a Scandinavian country. Let me. Well, yeah, when it, you saw that, I was like, I bet that's like Sweden or something. No, it's a, oh. I'm on my phone right now. Budek, Tibet, Budek, but oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. National happiness index is Bhutan. Okay, cool. And I believe if you look look that up, that my point of reference, Will to Bhutan, was I believe it's one of the few 
zero emission countries on the planet. I think they're even net carbon positive. Like they're actually demonstrably absorbing more carbon from the atmosphere than they're putting into it. That's so cool. Yeah, if you look it up, they've hit a few really interesting ecological benchmarks where, where they're actually a net cleaner of the planet now, not a polluter. And that's profound just to know that in this day and age that is happening. Babe, let's just pack up. Go to Bhutan. <laughs> Call it good. All right. And, 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 and that's one of the interesting keys, that their goal is not profit. The goal of their culture is, is, is not financial gain. Doesn't mean they've got a, they're not going to have a system of economics and they're not going to have to understand it and watch it. But it's, you know, the Bible does, our, even our Bible, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil, making mm-hmm. money number one. Right. Yeah. Mon- money's just a tool. It's like a, a, a big knife. I can carve it into a machete and chop down bananas and then with its, a little baby knife make a beautiful banana salad or I can do other things. It, it, it's a tool. Money's a tool of exchange. If it's understood, we can have spiritual or fair exchange, the third ethic yeah. of permaculture, you know, fair share, future share, fair share, not just for now, but down the track. You know, when it talks to farming and um, these monoculture business structures, which have a CEO at the top of a mass production system, basically, it's getting really interesting. If I can, if I just pull me back in, guys, if it digresses your your you're brief, but I think you're listening. No, I love this. I love yeah. this. I'm so into this right now. You keep so on. So you, you, you look at in your home country, the US, I'm not sure if you're aware, Bill Gates has just become the biggest farm owner in the yeah. US. Yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not now, too. This, this is getting bizarre because yeah. you've got literally the biggest farm owner in the US, Bill Gates. God knows if you put all the other billionaires together how much farm they own. And these guys are investing in artificial intelligence farming, satellite-driven farming. And they are talking about the farmer being displaced from the farm entirely, farms being run by robots, so that you're going to have this ultimate Marxist system where the Bill Gates of the world are going to own the food supply. Oh, and he's also he's also trained, um, talking about developing um, synthetic meat. So you have this man that owns the most farmland out of any person in America pushing for synthetic meat as well as population control. So yep. I'm just going to, you know, I just think that those those things put together are a little interesting. Just yeah, a bit. They're, they're, a lot, they're a lot interesting. And I think, <laughs> you know, there's, there's fascinating stuff going on at the moment. Like one of them is, is the, the massive rising value of cryptocurrency. You know, mm-hmm. the... The mainstream press is really still trying to say cryptocurrency is crap, and yet there, the, there is some smart money. There is a lot of money getting thrown at it. There's a lot of people somewhere driving a, a changing culture at the moment, the move towards, you think about it, a non-centralized, non-controllable, more trustworthy money, money supply. You know, the, the, yeah. base, the basis of the, the power pins that I understand it in our culture, and as a designer, I'm interested in it because I'm always asking myself, you know, is, is, is what to what degree is what I'm involved in rearranging a deck chair on the Titanic when I should be stealing as many deck chairs as I could and fastening together some lifeboats and building an alternative Titanic? Right. You know, at, at what – like I get concerned when I get single mums in the course who are renting in, in some outer suburb of a big city and they're doing the course because they want to save money on food. 
you know, I've, I've been around and seen it a lot to know that if you don't have your land and you're subject to a rental and if you're a single mother and you're disempowered, you're probably better off getting together a small community, sharing in a house, eating those $5 meal deals and saving every dollar you can to get a deposit for some land, like almost going, like getting out of that system, setting up something alternative. Yeah. You know, and because the reality is it's really takes a lot of effort to grow a bulk of food. You can, and, and this is it, Noosa Forest Retreat, part of our mission is to prop up all the superfoods that you simply can't buy. Mm-hmm. But while we're in the West and, and, you know, we can go and do a massage or a health consultation, I'm not going to try and compete against, say, Demeter, which is um, a biodynamic grain grower in the area that will sell us 20, we buy our rice, 20 kilograms satchel biodynamic fresh from the farm for about $35. Yeah. Now, we, we have grown rice by hand and the hourly return on it is ridiculous. So, <laughs> so it's like... We've got to really get our balance right. I don't believe that humanity can feed itself, even with the current populations, going back to hand-tooled organic farming. Now, that's what we're focused on, hand-tooled organic farming. Part of why we're focused on that is as an education centre so that you can actually realise how hard it is and how hard it is to get an excess yield that, that a factory farm can get. I believe that we're looking at designers that can integrate the best of computers and IT and work the land very systematically using mm-hmm. CAD-based design. Like a lot of our students now when they're doing their designs are already putting it on all sorts of computer-aided design devices. We've, we've had an 18-year-old who was able to drone his father's property and map it in 3D. Like there's some incredible tools coming through and I think – those tools can be correctly applied to ecological design so that they work a property and get a yield in a way that builds soil. So they can be, you know, you've got um, stainless steel computer-driven compost bins now on the coast where I live that can turn organic food scraps into the best humus, the best, you know, garden input within 12, 13, 14 days. Um, Throw the food in one end and it's, it's got intelligent monitor. It's monitoring moisture. It's monitoring oxygen, and it's composting like a computer. Literally, that is fascinating because we could have, for less than the cost of a fridge, one of these devices for less than the cost of the fridge, could be attached to every twenty or thirty houses and and processing all of the compost in suburbia into top granite food and going straight back to grow food at the point of the house. Mm-hmm. And this is. I think one one of the things I'd like to champion is we need to see that integration of high-end design and technology and computer power with with organic values because at the moment we we tend to have the mainstream profit industrial chemical system embracing technology wholesale and then you've got the hand farmers who are still the organic farmers who are a lot more driven by heart and now there's nothing wrong with the intelligence of the heart. In fact, and neuroscientists are starting to say we've got three brains. We've got neurons in our heart, our, our colon, our stomach, and our and our brain. And our heart's intelligence, I think we've underestimated that our heart is what gives us a sense of connection and authenticity. And mm-hmm. I th- what we value at Noosa Forest Retreat is a, a, com- a small community, and we've got a sister community now called Belbunya Eco Community. We're working with another community where we've learned a few things that we can s- support them with. But what we've visualized as a community as our key goal 
is that the goal of our community is to come closer to nature and each other. Where if you look at the layout of most Western cities across the planet, everywhere, it's all about the motor car. It's all about mass transit. And, and mm-hmm. even if that, that motor car, Musk's doing a pretty good job to champion in the electric era finally, but even as that motor car becomes electric, it's still transport. We've still got our houses settled around the Black River and we use the, what's going to become Musk's electric motorboat to get us to the food <laughs> supply where we're still yeah, buying yeah. dead-natured food, denatured food that is still incredibly, you know, destructive in terms of the transport costs. So what I'd like to see is that suburbia becoming, getting rid of more and more dividing fences, having more and more common land where you grow food. So, yeah, you, you still may get a core crop like wheat or potatoes from another shire, but whatever grows well in your area, you grow and you harvest. Absolutely, do what you do what you can for sure. Yeah, yeah. Something that I would be really interested in is trying to buy large tracts of land and kind of sublet them and that, have that. That gets exciting, Storm. Like yeah. that for for you guys, and I say you guys like the younger generation, but for for you guys who can master social media, you don't have to be present. Like community, the definition of community is a mm-hmm. common unity. We're in the age now of, of global communities where people don't have to be in the same space to be in the same communication and value space. So yeah, we, that's what we, that's what's so could, exciting about having a podcast. Yep, you could you can bring people together and you could take that one step further and you can collectively purchase land. The key the key value I think we've delivered at Noosa Forest Retreat and Belbanya is that we've got co-purchased land. Um, it's again it. With more people, you pull your money and you can buy more land. So either two things happen. Your price per acre drops. So you can either buy more land with your money or you can buy the, the land you're looking for for less price. That, now, that's right. value number one of a community land purchase. Value number two is you have a community think tank. We, I, I, One of the things I could not have underestimated more and I couldn't now value more guys in my life the five or six of us that started Noosa Forest Retreat are all still together in each other's mm-hmm. daily lives. You know, we're, we're literally eating, shitting, farting, talking, arguing, making up <laughs> together because we, we share the land. And with every year that goes by, you know, any one of us can walk around and point out 20 or 30 fruit trees we've planted. We can point out the spots on the land where we had a fight, the spots where we made up. Um, we're a part of the land and we're all a part of the land and we all have a, a high value in maintaining our share. Now, the out policy with a share is we can sell, it, sell a share and a go, but we can't destroy the project. And now that we're 12, 15 years in, we also recognize that we can't. We don't want to start the project again. Money can't buy 12, 15 years of food forest growth. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting to the point now where there's whole sections of the pro- property where any time of the year you can walk off barefoot with a basket and start to bring back all sorts of exotic fruits and nuts. There's there's no planting, there's no weeding, there's just some general harvesting. And when you're harv- when you're hungry and it's summer and there's two or three bright, colourful berries on the bush, it's not really work when there's a direct connection between the harvest and the eating. When they're literally, you know, two and three of what you harvest is going straight into your mouth yeah. and, di- and directly filling your need for nutrition and 
connection and creativity. And there's something you are literally in a Zen moment. You are you are connected to the earth, and especially if you get the magic to do it bare feet. And this is one of our core roles is to go to generate higher value foods, to have a home that we hold long-term, to maintain our social connections long-term, um, to cover our co- – to free the land from the bank. That's one of our key goals and we haven't done it yet. Our key social partner is the bank and our key leak of finances, we talk about closing the loop in a permaculture system. We want to look at where the money goes. A key link leak of money for us still is to the banks. Yeah. And right. One of the discussions I would like to come out of Noosa Forest Retreat, you know, growing food is almost the easy part. So we can do amazing things, especially with some basic systems theory understanding and some patience to put things in place and not be in a hurry to get, you know, a load of food tomorrow. We want to be in a hurry to build up a system that can sustain itself so that we become elements in the system. And with every passing day, week, there's more food and less work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so if you have a forest-based system where it's producing its own babies and looking after its own babies, you know, all you might have to do is knock back a weed. You see a baby mango go – like we've got to that point now in Noosa Forest Retreat. Some of the older mangoes are now sprouting baby mangoes under the tree line and we'll pick one that's rolled a little bit out or we may grab one and take it a bit further out and just chip a, chip a, chip a, a nest into the earth and, and drop the seed in. And we may, but there's less and less work. The seed's right there when you want it, in season. It becomes second and third generation. One of the things we talked about, the Italian tin of tomatoes, one of the things we don't plant anymore is tomatoes. We've got so many self-seeding tomatoes on the property that at any point in time, you just, you, you wander into what's becoming the wild food gardens and there's, there's tomatoes just growing wild. That's amazing. And it's that That's is one pure. thing. Sorry. Uh, so talking about more about the technical aspects of what you guys do, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that you, you found your climate and then you created microclimates. Correct. I've, I've seen some stuff about using microclimates as far as like hillsides, like the temperature difference between the bottom and the top of the hill. Yep. Um, do you guys use like greenhouses? Like what do you, what techniques do you use to get your microclimates? Okay, so this there's 101. I'll, I'll touch on a few and try and demonstrate the principles. So basically it's looking at the interplay of the sun, which is the energy that drives the whole thing, um, the air and water, So for, and, and looking at what the needs of a plant are. So you want to look at your general climate. So here where Nusifos Retreat is, we're subtropical. That gives a, a, a fairly reliable rainfall event through the year. Um you know, it can change wildly day to day but, and even month to month, but generally across a year we get about 1,600 mils of rain. Um, it's seasonal in a fairly predictable manner. Um, the temperature follows a fairly predictable high and low throughout the different seasons. It's all very mappable. And in that area, you've got all the native, you know, ecosystemic, the subtropical plants that grow in the area that, you know, the native, the native eucalypts, for instance, you can basically just chip a hole in the ground, like make a little nest, throw the tree in, and it's virtually impossible to kill it oh, wow. if if we go so avocados mangoes will grow really well in our area um now we're bordering we're subtropical which means in winter we actually get a bit cool so our mangoes and bananas which are sort of more tropical plants although we've got the conditions they need across the year in summer it's almost perfect for those plants where we are but in winter it is a bit cool and the plants will suffer so 
what we've got to understand when we start to bring everything together with ecological design is we look at where we are. So where we are compared to the equator, we know the sun goes lower in the sky to the north every winter. So we know if we've got a structure or a mountain, Will, like this is sort of it. And if we know if we buy, if we have access to the land that is the south slope of the mountain, or it faces north, that's going to be a lot warmer in winter than the south slope of a mountain that, that faces south. Because when the right. sun drops low in the sky, the solar intensity on the north-facing slope is going to increase because the sun is approaching a perpendicular to the slope. And the sun on the south slope will decrease because it's approaching more of acute angle. So just by understanding where we are to the equator determines where we may plant that mango. So if where we are, we would say let's plant our tropical plants on the north-facing slope because they get more sun in winter. So we can, although we're subtropical, that's we can start to create microclimate on that slope to grow tropical. We can start to move up to hotter, wetter than what our basic climate is. But then on, let's say, that south slope that in winter it gets a bit cooler and a bit less evaporation, so there's a bit less sun, there's a bit less evaporation, the water tends to be safer in there, we can tend to get more rainforesty or wetter conditions with less sun. So what we might say is, well, that's where we can grow um, our cool climate plants, that's where we can grow our blueberries, our pears and our apples, which actually have a chill factor. They need to have so many hours below a certain temperature in winter and they don't need to photosynthesize because they drop their leaves. So I can put them right in the shade line of my structure on the south side of my house, or I can put them right in at the ravine of a south side of a mountain. And in both of those cases, that valley may be subtropical, but I start to have a tropical garden and a tropical set of plantings in one area as defined by design. And in another area, I may start to move to cool climate plants. And then it turns out those tropical plants that are on the north slope they, they can harvest more water. They tend to perspire more water. So they start to recycle their water and create humidity. Um, and if we have a forest, we know that a forest can actually create a low-pressure system. It can draw in clouds. It can even seed. The intelligence of a forest can seed the very clouds that it's drawn in by creating a low-pressure system. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you've got to start to go, is this the trees that are doing this or is this just the intelligence of life? Where does the the oxygen production of the photosynthesis of the tree and the grass finish, you know, Will, you know, Storm, where does the, the, the oxygen producing quality of anything that photosynthesizes finish and where do our lungs start? Because our, yeah. lungs, our lungs need green stuff to photosynthesize and the trees need carbon dioxide, which we create. So we're in this, we're in this unbreakable sim symbiosis. Yep. That, that we're just sort of not aware of. And, and if we become aware of that, my health literally depends on the health of the humus, the health of the topsoil that that plant's growing in. The quality of the air and the quality of the water it gets all determines the quality of the, of the oxygen. And it's not just oxygen. Like you go back to the yogic system, they talk about the air as the carrier of information. It's the carrier of prana. Um, and that, that sacred places, healthy places, have life and prana in the air. It, it, you can start to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, which I'm not sure how where your audience is at, guys, with this. I would like to take them a little further down than than where we're at right now. Yeah, you know. So th this this left and right brain approach, or this this feminine masculine, you know, this the, the the polarity of life. We tend to have different ways of looking at it. 
one of the one of the polarities I think that we have is we have the you know we have the rational logic discerning brain that creates judgment and separation. You know, mm-hmm. It makes great high court judges, and yes, we have a, we have a need for those. But then we have our artists and our creatives that often struggle in any class that's that's reductionist or rational or logical, but are incredibly creative with word or song or dance movement. You know, there's a magic to a good, a true artist with movement. They can express emotion that's often that that, that poets struggle to express. Yeah. So this this deep intelligence, you know, what what are we involved in with our system? Our base assumptions about our system, if we just think it's a whole heap of dead stuff and we're the controlling intelligence on the planet and we're here to have make it submit and do our bidding to pursue physical pleasure and fame and fortune, I think that's pretty much been the driving ethos of what we've got. It, it leads to Kim Kardashians being able to make billions of dollars and and heart and sold organic farmers struggling to make a living. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's a really – you've got these – extremes of value and I think one of the key things we need I think one of the beautiful things about your podcast is that is the need for education um it is a it is data the system can only value what it understands and it can only understand what what it's been taught and we have a system at the moment that is still predominantly marketed by the mainstream values Mm -hmm. you know I know that's that has been the driving force behind this podcast is I, I mean, I had, it wasn't very big, but I had a lifestyle blog that was just basically me buying things, testing them out, letting people know what they were like, and just trying to stay relevant by constantly consuming. And it was at this, this crux where it was just a hardcore consumer and my health was also on the decline where I kind of just had this come to Jesus moment and I started asking questions and I started really analyzing my life and realizing that this consumer-based life that I was living, that I had been living for years, was not healthy. And it wasn't helping me. It wasn't helping my family. It wasn't, and it wasn't helping the earth in terms of, you know, my my constant um, buying and throwing plastic away, and you know all that. And I wasn't able to have to really have that moment of clarity without being shown, um, without reading books about. Um, our health and our environment and regenerative agriculture, I didn't know the true impact of my, that my actions had and the true impact that our society's action has on this earth until I was educated, until I absorbed that knowledge. Because I, I truly feel like you cannot know something you cannot know, like actually know the status of this world and the troubles that we are facing and not do anything about it. Because once you once you're educated on that and once you start to understand the the true Yeah, the the fact that we that we are living in a way that is killing our earth and is in turn killing us, you can't 
continue on just as the person that you were before that moment. Yep, I love that. When you've got that heart in it, when you can make an authentic connection, it, it, like that, it's, it's like other values fall along the wayside. Mm-hmm. It's like I remember when I was mad keen on surfing. That was a pretty high value on me. It gave me a real, still does, gives me a real connection to nature. You literally go out to the edge of the earth and the edge of the water and you're playing with the forces of the sun and the moon that you know create a barreling wave that you can get in this zen, this central mm-hmm. spot where the whole world's rotating around you. You know, t- time in the green room, we used to call it when I grew up surfing. It's, it's, which used to be a single, even that's changed now. It's become about thruster surfing and, and the languaging instead of time in the green room or the zen point or getting stoked, it's bashing the lip. And so there's a, there's a holistic way of connecting with the planet, which mindfulness encourages, meditation encourages. A lot mm-hmm. of our religious traditions actually encourage. Our, our, our very Christianity, you talked about a Jesus moment. I'm waiting for the Christian movement to have a Jesus moment where they, where they, the Bible itself said the primary creation of my works, the final revelation of my works is the creation. The Bible's my secondary revelation. Like we, we take for granted our misinterpretations of words on the book and yet just completely override the environment. Like if you took the environment as a sacred creation of God, and really looked at it and got to understand it, as you say, you, that you have that that bioeducation becomes a bio experience where you start to realize you're at one with it. And unfortunately, at this point, we lost connection with Ian, and he had to take off before we could reestablish the connection. So we both really enjoyed talking to Ian, and we look forward to having him on again, and we're going to discuss some of the more technical aspects of permaculture So keep an eye out for Ian's next episode coming up in the near future. Feeling social? Follow us at the Feel Good Community Podcast on Instagram for daily inspiration, our blog, and behind-the-scenes footage. Join the Feel Good Community Podcast on Facebook, where you can read interesting articles, ask us questions, and share progress of your own journey.